You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing where our team of journalists analyze the most important news of the day through the framework of key Real Vision themes. That's macro, liquidity, market structure, and crypto. We cover it all. Hi, I'm Jack Farley with Real Vision. We have our managing editor, Ed Harrison, standing by with Real Vision's Ash Bennington, and they're going to talk about the bifurcation between investment grade and high yield. And I think they're also going to touch on share buybacks and bank dividends. But before we go to them, let's quickly go over the latest news and data on the coronavirus pandemic, as well as some price action in markets. It's 3.30 p.m. Monday, April 13th. In New York, the death toll today passed 10,000. Truly a grim milestone. In the U.S., total active case count has breached 520,000. Meanwhile, we're seeing the active case count in Europe plateau rather than decrease, as predicted by many models, including the GMI forecast. All right, now let's get to some price action. High yield sold off today, backing off some of the tremendous gains it made on Friday. Meanwhile, U.S. equities are taking a more subdued decline, showing some sluggishness as earnings season approaches. U.S. Treasuries, interestingly enough, did not rally. And in fact, today they had a mild sell-off as well, except at the very short end of the curve. It's very interesting because it amounts to yet another bad day for the risk parity trade. And in other news, SoftBank reported a staggering $16.7 billion loss in its vision fund. The fund, whose holdings include WeWork and Uber, attributed the loss to, quote, a deteriorating market environment. All right, now let's go to Ed Harrison and Ash Bennington with their market analysis. Ash? Thanks, Jack. I'm Ash Bennington for Real Vision in New York. I'm here with Ed Harrison in D.C. Welcome, Ed. Uh, good, good to be here. Ash, good. Uh, happy Monday to you. Happy Monday to you as well. You know, Ed, uh, it was a happy Monday until over the weekend I was reading your note uh, about Great Depression-like scenarios, and uh, it kind of had a, a an, almost a damned if you do, damned if you don't in terms of central bank action. You know, talking about socializing losses by taking uh, by taking those losses onto central bank balance sheets uh, or or not, and uh, there didn't really seem to be any great options. The other thing that struck me as interesting was it dovetailed rather nicely with the conversation that I had with Rao on Real Vision Daily Briefing on Friday, where we talked about this cycle that he's been uh, framing of liquidation, hope, insolvency. What are your thoughts on that, and um, how does that tie into what you were thinking this weekend? Yeah, I mean, I I wanted to start the conversation out again uh, with what Rao was talking about in terms of liquidation, uh, hope, and then insolvency as the three phases that we're going through, and the question being, where are we in that timeline? And by the way, speaking of timelines, I just want to say that we're taping this at 2 o'clock, uh, just so that 2 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, just so people have an understanding of where we are. Markets are, you know, 1.75% down on the S&P. I, I also saw that the small cap 2000 was down about 3.5%. You had told me right before we came on, it had rallied last week, the Russell 2000, to its mean reversion of of uh, 20% up. So 
Here's how I'm thinking about it, though, uh, in terms of what I wrote at Credit Write-Downs over the weekend. I'm looking at it almost positively speaking in, in the sense that a Great Depression is not great until you get the credit write-downs mm -hmm. from banks, until the banks start going and solving themselves, until the financial system is cracking up. Only then will you get a Great Depression. So well, let me read this quote. You, you uh, said, for me, uh, though, depressions are made in the banking sector. The reason this site is named Credit Write-Downs is owed to that. Time and again, it's a financial panic and crisis that takes the financial system that has ensured a Great Depression. Yeah, so when you think of it from the conversation you were having with Rao on Friday, you're going from a financial panic to hope to insolvency because the financial panic, the liquidity phase that he talked about, was stopped out by the Fed taking the private sector onto its balance sheet, becoming the market maker of last resort, and also basically privatizing losses and uh, uh, socializing the—it's uh, the reverse—privatizing the, the gains and socializing the losses when it takes all of those things onto the balance sheet. So. We had the potential for a 2008-2009-style meltdown that the Fed stopped out. Now we're in this phase in the middle where we're thinking, okay, perhaps uh, we can actually get out of this without a Great Depression. But then on the backside, this is when the insolvency phase comes in. That's when the real economy kicks in. That's when we start to know how bad it really is. And this is when the banking sector could potentially be infected by all of the negativity, all of the credit write-downs because of the insolvency in the, in the real economy. So I'm looking at this as it's not a 100% uh, shut and closed case of depression we still have the potential to get out of this, but it all depends how long it goes on, how infected the banking system becomes. Yeah, what are the key metrics you're watching there, Ed, when you think about um, assessing the risk systemically to the banking system? Are you looking at TED spreads? Are you looking at LIBOR OIS? Are you looking at the value of the equities or some other metric? Uh, so let me answer your question, but you know, I had to switch out my cameras while you were doing that because I'm having terrible uh, video connections. I have no idea why, but I'm using the crappy FaceTime uh, video camera now. The you know what I'm looking at is I'm looking at leverage ratios. One is you can look at tier one capital ratios, uh, which is what you use under Basel III. Uh, but th those are very complex. I think Sheila Bear makes a good case for thinking about just using simple leverage. That is, you know, how much leverage is this company using uh, relative to its uh, its capital base? You know, how big is its asset base compared to the capital base? So that's another way to look at it. And I think the final thing is, is when we talk about a reactive versus a proactive uh, way to deal with this from a systemic risk perspective, it has to be about looking at companies that are paying out high uh, ratios of their dividends. You know, some companies, I actually looked at this, there are certain banks that pay out like 40% of their, uh, they have a 40% payout in terms of dividends. The, the Fed should just proactively right now ban all dividends for banks. Mm -hmm. Just say, this is it, you know, we're going into uh, the mode where we don't want any bailouts, uh, we don't want to have another 2008, 2009. While the economy, the real economy is collapsing, you guys cannot pay out any money in dividends until we say so. That's proactive central banking, but that's not what we're going to get.
<laughs> you know, you made so many good points there. I, I was, I was smiling when you were talking about the complexity of it. I mean, I, I remember the when the when Basel three and Basel two were being uh, drafted and transitioned. Rather, the the level of complexity and the risk weighted asset calculation was absolutely overwhelming. I was a reporter at CNBC uh, back in those days, and I wrote a piece, and the the headline was something like, "Forget about too big to fail. Worry about too complicated to succeed." And you know, I, I just remember thinking, "Gosh, maybe there maybe there are guys with PhDs uh, in a back room who can understand this sort of thing." But if the rest of us can't, how much good does it really do? Right. You know, and so I think that that's why I like Sheila Bear's approach to just look at simple leverage. You look at, I mean, if you look at Fannie and Freddie and why they're in big trouble now, they have ridiculous amounts of leverage. It's the same reason that they went bust in 2007, 2008. Uh, when you look at simple leverage ratios, that tells you a lot. But irrespective of how leveraged these institutions are individually or collectively on average, the reality is, is, is that if you want to prevent the world outcomes, then you need to take a proactive approach to do that, like banning dividends. Uh, and then, you know, these uh, excess dividends later if they make it through. But what you want is, is you want a, a, a financial system that is with able to, uh, that's able to withstand the problems in the real economy. And let me just say, U.S. banks are in better positions than the European banks because they were bolstered after the great financial crisis in Europe still have a lot of problems there. So on that level, at a minimum, it's positive for the United States. Well, you know, this is a, almost a philosophical question about the role of the U.S. banking system and in, indeed the role of the global banking system. But to focus here more on the U.S., it's this question that I kind of come back to in, in my own head, which is that are, are banks going to be regulated like utilities? Are they going to have access, for you know, for example, to limitless capital and they'll be funded by the Fed adequately and backstopped against all provisions? Or are they functioning more like hedge funds? And, and if they're not functioning like hedge funds, then how do you think about the, for example, the, the dividends, and obviously also the second point is share buybacks. Well, you know, I think that the power in the United States are very reticent about making drastic changes. They very much believe in the free hand, that is the uh, invisible hand of Adam Smith, and they think that it's better not to be overly regulated. At the same time, we know that the locus of dislocation in in financial crisis of down is in the financial system. So it does beg the question that I ask, should we make banking safe? I don't think that it's going to happen unless you have a complete meltdown. That is, is, is that because you have active policy, you need to have the meltdown first in order to make the policy choice. And what we saw in 2008, 2009, what they've learned from that is that uh, they can dump you back together again. There's reason to overhaul things 100 percent. Well, that's not a very cheerful note. The notion that uh, the only way that we're going to effectively get any kind of real change is with a systemic meltdown. Yeah, it's it, it's not uh, exactly the uh, the thing that you want to Hey, let me give you something else to think about um, on, a, on a slightly different note, because I was noticing one of the questions that someone asked uh, in your video with Rob Friday. Uh, Ida P., she was asking this um, 
this guy Brian Pellegrini he came on to Money Weeks uh, podcast with Marilyn Somerset Webb and was ask and she was asking him why he doesn't think the numbers add up in terms of what economists are projecting. This guy is much more bullish about the ability for the U.S. economy to recover and get into Q3 and Q4. I mean, what's your sense uh, living at the epicenter in terms of how behaviors are, have changed and will change and what impact that might have on the economy over a longer period? I mean, you know, how behaviors have changed, Ed, how are they the same? I mean, if you live in New York City, your life today could not be more different than your life 60 days ago. The reality is that people are hunkering down in their own apartments. You know, all the stores are closed. You're not going out and doing all the stuff that New Yorkers love to do, which is sitting in restaurants and bars and cafes and coffee shops. You know, we are all living these very insular lives. And, um, you know, that that obviously there's a psychological impact, but that the, there's a massive change in the structure of the economy. The way that we consume goods and services in New York City just is just diametrically opposed 180 degrees to where we were uh, to where we were 60 days ago. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how you measure that impact. And, and what what I think is that, you know, I, I really wonder that it can be measured, right? I just don't believe that anyone could have come up with a mechanism to capture the end data, the end impact of what this means for small businesses. And look, I suppose if you if you add enough support uh, from from fiscal policy, you know, if you have if you have a, an effective mechanism of flowing capital through lenders into uh, into these small and medium sized enterprises, I suppose you can keep them afloat. But I'm pretty skeptical about that because there are hard caps on those numbers, and there also have been problems operationalizing those capital flows, meaning that, you know, it's it's very hard for, for people who are two, three, four person businesses to figure out how to get access to these facilities. They don't have teams of bankers and lawyers and accountants who are doing their bidding for them. They're they're on websites and hitting the refresh button and not understanding why the, the site has gone down or why they don't have this or that piece of information. And um, I, I'm just very skeptical from a, from a, an economy on the ground standpoint that this is anything less than uh, you know a severe severe dislocation to the structure fundamentally of the system. Right. Yeah, and I would agree with you on that. I mean, and this is how I would posit it. I would say that when you have a severe dislocation like that, there are going to be winners and losers. Definitely. You know, Zoom, they're going to be a winner. Amazon's going to be a winner, as an example. And many of these small businesses they going to be losers. Yeah. But just say, as an example, that um, people in the future spend more money with winners than they did with the losers before. And as a result, maybe GDP in the future. But what about that transition period right. when you go uh, one structural framework to a separate one? That's what we're talking about. You know, you have the lockdown phase where you have a, a steep fall, then you come out of down, and then suddenly you have a, a massive shift, a massive structure in how people work, how people consume, how people shop. All of those things are going to take time to resolve themselves, and they're going to be bankruptcies as a result of that. Yeah, listen, I think you know you you, you may be talking about 
what the future looks like, but I'm very skeptical about the ability of the future to arrive uh, by May 1st or June 1st or uh, January 2021. Look, you know, if my dry cleaner uh, goes out of business, if the coffee shop across the street, if the restaurant down the block goes out of business, they're not going to be consuming Zoom, right? They're not going to be using these services if the, you know, it's, it's what we've talked about so many times, right, is that, you know, one person's wages is the next person's revenue, one person's revenue is the next person's wages. And if that system gets interrupted, if there's a structural shift, as you point out correctly, there's this frictional period, and we don't really know how long that period is going to be. And and the idea that we're going to go from an economy uh, that is, you know, in, in New York City, uh, you know, driven by, by small merchants and large merchants, I guess, as well. But how are you going to make that transition for those people? I, I'm very skeptical about our ability to do this in a time frame that, that doesn't massively uh, impact the system as it now stands. And, you know, uh, to follow on to that, it goes to the second post that was for, for this morning at Credit Write Downs, talking about my thoughts on testing and lockdowns. And, you know, there are a number of different uh, ways to look at this. The the analysis that I came out with, looking at countries that relatively well, let's talk countries like Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, in Asia. We can also talk about Denmark versus Sweden versus Iceland in Scandinavia. Yeah. And what I think that the, the data elicit is a that testing is first and foremost uh, what you want to you get. So if you want to have an open economy, this is one like the one we used to have where you have tourism and people from outside who are under different protocols, different lockdown mechanisms in your own country, what you have to have is testing. Have to have massive testing and random testing in order to be able to know that you can uh, find clusters of infection and and isolate them before become deadly within the within the economy. You know, Ed, that one of the most interesting things that I thought from that note was your analysis of Sweden versus Norway versus Iceland. Could you talk a little bit about how those countries have differed and what the response has been? Yeah, yeah. And Use Denmark here as the one instead of Norway because Denmark is about 5.8 million, Sweden's like 10 million uh, in population, and when you look at the number of fatalities there, they're rising exponentially now. In, uh, well, I wouldn't say exponentially; they're rising in Sweden at a high clip, and the right. number of deaths per million people is double the level it is in Sweden compared to Denmark. And so the question becomes, why is that? The answer most people come up with is because Denmark did the lockdown early, Sweden didn't do the lockdown. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at Iceland, they didn't do the lockdown either. Uh, they have much more of a Swedish approach to this whole thing. And what we see there is their number of deaths per million people is like 17, 17 per million, versus Sweden, it's uh, a number that's more 92, which is, uh, you know, in five to six times higher than Iceland. And the big difference is that Iceland has tested 10% of its population. Most tests in the, uh, per person, uh, you know, uh, per million people, if you will, there are only 360,000 people in the whole country of any country in the world. And so what it shows you is that you do not have to lock down necessarily, that as long as you do testing and you often, frequently, r randomly, uh, then you can make sure that you isolate the cases that are problematic and 
get those clusters and quarantine them. Yeah, you you also point out um, that you know there's the the risk that Iceland, of course, is a small and sparsely populated country. But I do sort of fear, and I'm curious to hear your view on this. Um, does the United States begin to look, you know, more like Sweden and uh, and less like Iceland? If you think about our own testing regime and what we've been able to spin up. Yeah. So my analysis is that is this is is that you know uh, the exigent circumstances of people dying left and right, uh, mandated lockdown and. Like Italy, places like Spain, and then eventually the United States, because we've the game in terms of the test at and so we've had a mushroom of cases in the United States. You know, we have over uh, 550,000 cases now, and and the most number of deaths, 20, and and this is going to continue. But the question is, is what happens on the backside of that? So for me, the biggest question is, what are the takeaways? prepared to release the lockdown because the exigent circumstances now are the crushing load on the economy from having this lockdown. You know, in the United States, we're talking about 17 million people losing their jobs almost in a period of uh, a little bit over three weeks. Yeah. So to me, what that says is, is that the potential for uh, releasing lockdown early is great. Uh, Donald Trump about May. Will we in the United States be ready? And if we're not following an Iceland-like protocol, what's the potential that there's a second wave uh, that has very negative impacts on our ability to function as an economy? I think that, you know, it's, it's going to be a large second wave if the lockdown is released early without adequate testing. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and just put some numbers around it. I think it's 16.6 million new claims since mid-March uh, for unemployment, which is a, a staggering number. You know, and just to come back to some simple numbers, maybe because they're easy to measure, but it does give you a sense of what we've been talking about, which is that the magnitude of this in the real economy versus the magnitude of this uh, as it's gauged by financial markets. You know, and I, really basic numbers. I just look at the I look at the S and P and I look at the relative positioning. And uh, look, we're only down 18.9 percent or so from the all-time high that we reached on February 19th. So you think about that. It's less than two months. Think about the massive destruction that we've seen in the U.S. economy, and we're, we're off less than 19 percent. I mean, less than 20 percent. That's a that's a, an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And, and on the flip side, since the low on March 23rd, um, you know, we're, we're up 22.8 percent on the S&P. I mean, you, you hear that number, and you go, can that, how can that be? Well, you know, there are two things to that. One is the framework that Rao was pointing out, the liquidation phase, yes. which has been stopped out, the hope phase, and then the insolvency phase. We're in the hope phase now. And from a financial markets perspective, that's the retracement phase. You know, people right. talk about the Fibonacci numbers, 38%, 50%, 61%, 62% at the upside, being the numbers where you get retracement. We're at the 50, we're not even at the 50% level in terms of retracement. This is a completely normal sort of bear market type of activity that you would expect. So yeah. the reality is, is, is that it takes time for people to digest the information and then the second wave falls down. And it's people getting sucked into these uh, these bear market rallies that causes bear markets to be so pernicious. They're so difficult to trade because, you know, there are these massive swings to the upside that right. people think, okay, it's over. And then suddenly the bottom falls out when all the, the news comes in. Let me give you an example of how I'm thinking of it from the real economy perspective. As an example, 
one interpretation of what the Fed did with the junk market is that that's a positive. They've create they've added a blanket onto junk that they didn't have before. So a further taking of um, of losses onto the public balance sheet, socializing those losses, and that's positive for the market because the private sector won't have to take those losses. But another uh, worse way to look at this. And I think that this is uh, potentially what's the outcome is is that the triple C's of the world, the um, the B, the single B's of the world, they have no blanket and they won't get the blanket. The Fed won't go down to them, so that suddenly you the you, the, the Fed's moved down, and 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 these guys are stuck, and so that's where the bankruptcies are going to occur there and with small businesses. So mm-hmm. where you might think that it's a positive. And the market's rallying on that thought. It's actually not really as positive as you might think at first blush. Well, you know that's always the challenge with drawing a line in the sand is that there's always another side of the line, right? And there's very little, you know, ability to ever, you know, ameliorate that. If you're going to draw a line, there's always going to be another side of it. And I think I think you're right, and that's why I brought up Rao's model at the very outset. I think that does seem to be what's going on here. You saw the initial liquidation. You saw the initial sell-off. You know. Peak to trough max drawdown between Feb 19 and March 23rd, 33.9% loss, right? This is very close to a Fibonacci number. Uh, and then, you know, we're now in this hope phase, and you, you look at the, the rally from, from, from the all-time, uh, from the, from the uh, post, you know, the sell-off lows on the 23rd, and it's, it's pretty substantial. And then we're now waiting, I guess, for the other shoe to drop. Getting back to what you said about, uh, about the high-yield market, you made some really interesting points, something, frankly, I didn't know in that I learned from the newsletter, which is that there are there are rules uh, that are size allocation rules in uh, in high yield uh, exchange traded products that prevent uh, effectively uh, companies from taking up on a percentage basis a larger than a particular allocation. And the the risk of this, as you begin to explain in the piece, is that you you have the potential that uh, companies cannot have demand from investment grade uh, buyers and then also be locked out of uh, certain aspects of the high yield market through through exchange traded products. Tell us a little bit about that and what that potentially portends. Yeah, so this is something I wrote uh, in originally in January. I had a post. I think it was uh, called, uh, you know, uh, the triple B problems and uh, and uh, ETF junk ETF fake ETF liquidity, if you will, uh, something like that. And the the premise is is that on the one side you have the problems with fallen angels. And then on the second side, you have problems with the lack of real liquidity in the underlying assets for ETFs. The first problem is the one that you're talking about. That is, is that the GEs, the AT&Ts of the world, if they become fallen angels, suddenly they are too big to insert all of their debt into an ETF. You know, you can have 10%. You can't have GE taking up 23% of the of the uh, of the exchange traded fund. That, that, that's not possible. But if they're 23% of the junk market, then suddenly 13% of that is not uh, alloc- you're, you're not allocating to that percentage if you're a manager within the market uh, who is looking to embed that into the ETF. That's a problem in terms of you know the ability of the junk market to absorb issuers that are that large. So not only do you have no liquidity because all of your investment grade buyers are not buying your product, but 
you also have a problem in terms of junk not being able to absorb the sheer mass of, of debt uh, that is being dumped onto that market. And then there's the other problem, which you didn't mention, which is a fake ETF liquidity, which is what I would call it. When you're a junk investor, you're buying high yield, you're buying uh, to, uh, to hold for maturity. You're not selling it on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, the, the liquidity that you see in ETFs is completely at odds with the liquidity in the underlying market. And so when right. there is a dislocating event in a sector like the credit markets, you you get people who are trading in and out of the ETF. Uh, you, you could get a sort of desire to sell lots of bonds, but then the ETF has to sell those bonds as well because right. people are selling. And what happens then when there are no buyers? Suddenly right. you have a gap down. So this is fake liquidity, and this is going to be a problem in terms of the Fed saying that they're only going to buy 33% of these ETFs maximum. Is that going to be enough for them to provide the liquidity necessary to deal with problems like that? I, I don't, I wonder. Yeah, you know, you, what, it's it's this liquidity illusion that you're talking about from a from a retail investor standpoint. Whether you're buying a while you're buying a, a a bond fixed income exchange traded product or a stock uh, exchange traded product, they look the same. But the reality is, the underlying liquidity of the assets themselves are very different. The bond market is simply not as liquid. There's a huge number of issues out there. Uh, there's a massive number of QCIPs, as anybody who's ever worked in the fixed income world knows, uh, and uh, and the outstanding amount uh, is enormous. And so that you, you create this illusion of liquidity by having this very simple to track uh, number that may uh, not, in fact, probably doesn't reflect the underlying dynamics of the assets themselves. Yeah. And, you know, I think that uh, when you think of the different QCIPs that you're talking about, AT&T, as an example, has uh, you know, common shares. That's it. They're all the same. AT&T, the company, also has a number of different bond issuances at different maturity rate uh, levels issued at different times. So yep. automatically, there's a, uh, you know, the, there's more fragmentation in the credit markets than there are in the equity markets. And that is a problem in terms of liquidity for an ETF-like structure. These are things that, you know, the Fed should have fixed or should have thought about before. But again, as I always say, policymakers are most Mostly reactive, they're not proactive. I, I wrote this in January, and I'm revisiting it now because I think that the Fed's drawing the line in the sand with fallen angels is not going to solve the problem. And so when we move into Rao's uh, insolvency phase, we're going to see a lot of triple Cs, we're going to see a lot of single Bs, a lot of energy companies that are defaulting. Uh, the Kansas City Fed came out with a piece last, uh, you know, they did a survey last week. And it said that at $30 a barrel, 61% of energy companies are solvent, which means, ergo, 39% are insolvent. So 39% of the energy space will go bust in 2021 if we have energy levels, that is, oil prices that stay at the level that they're at right now. That's, that's a problem. 
Yeah, and uh, the, just to just to call back to something you said earlier, there are a dizzying array of parameters in the fixed income world. When I was a young guy helping out on a on a bond desk, I was overwhelmed at first. Right, there's just a huge number. You've got different maturities, you've got different claims on assets, you've got different levels of seniority, you've got you know you've got features like sinking funds and all kinds of crazy stuff that most retail equity investors never think about. But this is a fact of life in the bond world, and it's yet another reason why exchange traded traded products create an illusion of liquidity or an illusion of simplicity uh, that simply doesn't exist when it comes to the underlying assets. And we've been talking now for about 25 minutes. Let me ask you, when you're looking out at this universe, thinking about your thesis, what are the specific parameters or the specific uh, numbers that you're watching to see which direction things are moving? What happened is that I'm looking for liquidity spreads. I'm looking for the spreads versus uh, between double Bs and single Bs, between double Bs and triple Cs as a reflection of how much liquidity is in the market. Can these guys go to market? Can they roll over their debt? And that will be a, a sign of whether the Fed's having drawn the line in the sand at the ETF level and at Fallen Angels is going to work in terms of uh, liquidity within the high-yield market. So uh, apologies. I know we've had some problems with audio and video here. Obviously, I'm in New York. You're in D.C. We're kind of running and gunning on the fly here. But, Ed, thank you so much for joining us. It's a very interesting conversation. We'll pick it up again tomorrow. Definitely. Thanks, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.